Our reading this morning is from Joshua, chapter 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with a, his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The word of the Lord. All right, you can have a seat. And as you go to your seat, we will be in uh, Joshua 5, uh, verses 13 through 15. And let me pray, and we'll, uh, we'll look and see what the Lord has for us in his, in his good word. Father, thank you for uh, helping us to see you more clearly as we study your living and active word. Spirit, I pray that uh, the words would come alive in our hearts. They quicken our hearts to worship Christ, uh, to love him with everything that we are and that we have, only because you first loved us. Thank you so much. We love you. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Well, some of you have uh, perhaps seen a TV show. It was on CBS. I don't know if it's still on the air anymore, but it was called uh, Undercover Boss. Anyone seen this show, Undercover Boss? Yeah. Uh, it might still be on the air. I'm not sure. It uh, was basically a show where uh, the, the CEO or uh, big boss of usually a, a, a bigger company would disguise themselves. They go through all this makeup and uh, costumes to disguise themselves. And what what they would do? They would go into the place uh, that they they the company that they own, the place of work. Usually, it was a service industry of some sort, and they would they would be disguised, but they would operate with uh, some of the service workers of their own company. Uh, so, for example, I know I saw one where the uh, CEO of Taco Bueno uh, disguised himself as one of the workers in one of the Taco Buenos and was like working the, uh, the drive-through. Uh, and, and so the, the, the aspect of the show uh, that is, is pretty charming is that, of course, the, the, the big boss, the CEO, is in some ways humbling himself to, to dress as one of the workers and work in the fast food line and kind of get an idea of who works for him and, and uh, what, what kind of systems and structures are in place in the company. And maybe he gets uh, an idea of what he might want to improve in the company because he's had this experience. And so that's kind of the premise of the show. The drama of the show is when some of the employees might begin to yell at this undercover boss or speak down to the undercover boss because they obviously don't know who it is. And then at the end of the show, what happens is that the, the boss finally reveals himself to these workers that he has been alongside for the past several days. And to their dismay, they realize what they were doing, that they were yelling and talking down to the CEO of the company. And what we see in these episodes is that they're actually very humbled that at the end of the day, their boss does not fire them for the behavior because they did not know. Now, our text today that uh, Kirk read over us, it's clear that Joshua, in this part of the story, has encountered a man. And we read it's a man with a sword, a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua first approaches this man with a bit of bravado. 
You know, you kind of pick up on that. He, he goes up to this man and asks him a question. But when the man reveals who he is, Joshua is quickly humbled. He realizes who he is talking to. So this is a story this morning of priorities and position. Priorities and position. And so here is the main idea this morning. And once again, we have printed both announcements on this sheet of paper that you hopefully got on the way in. And on the other side, you can take notes during the message if you feel so inclined. Here is the, the main idea this morning. A powerful presence produces proper priorities and position. Molly said this week I went way overboard on alliteration, and I think she's right. Uh, I, I blame Chris. Uh, actually, I'm, you're my inspiration for alliteration, Chris. This probably went way too far. But a proper, uh, powerful presence produces proper priorities and position. Please don't say that quickly. You will not be able to. So priorities and position this morning. We've, uh, we've been on this journey through the, the book of Joshua over the past several weeks. What we've seen is that we have a new generation of Israelites. The first generation has passed away in the wilderness. This generation we have seen over the past few weeks has crossed over the Jordan River. Uh, we saw that miraculously as the Jordan River uh, parted and they were walking over dry land. And now we see in this passage that uh, they're... They're in the promised land, they're by Jericho. That's exactly where we see the author put Joshua in our passage this morning. By Jericho, in the land of Canaan, in the promised land that God is giving to his people. So that's kind of the setting, that's, that's where we are this morning. I want to take just a couple of minutes and, and maybe zoom out a bit and, and, and make the comment uh, that is fairly obvious if you are a believer and you've studied God's word and you treasure God's word. God's word is marvelous. It's magnificent. It's incredible. The way it's put together, all that it has for us. One of the things I want to uh, kind of show you this morning in this text and particularly where we are in the book of Joshua, uh, both this week and next as we get into Jericho. Next week is the battle of Jericho in chapter 6. If you've been in church, you've probably sung songs about the battle of Jericho. You've probably even marched around as a kid. Maybe as an adult, I don't know, but as a kid, you've marched around uh, and, and told the story of Jericho. But what I want us to see in this text this morning is that in some sense, the author of Joshua is moving us back toward Eden. The, the author of Joshua in these passages, moving us back toward Eden. Now, now what do I mean by that? Because obviously Eden is in the book of Genesis, which was five books ago. So what do I mean when I say the author of Joshua seems to be moving us closer to Eden? Well, last week uh, we saw that the people took a Passover meal after they crossed the Jordan. And we said, as we've been saying for the past several weeks, that uh, what is happening in Joshua is in some sense a second Passover. So when we see the people take Passover after they cross the Jordan in Joshua, we have a strong connection with that first generation taking a Passover meal before they cross the Red Sea, which happens in Exodus 12. The men being circumcised last week in Joshua 5 has a very strong correlation to Exodus 4, when Moses and his wife, Zipporah, circumcised their son. 
So you can see we, we've gone from Exodus 12 to Exodus 4. And in this story that we just heard from Kirk in Joshua 5, we read that Joshua removes his sandals in front of this commander of the Lord's army. And if you know your Bible, that, that automatically should make you think of a different story in the book of Exodus in chapter 3 when Moses removes his sandals at the burning bush. So can you see we, we've gone from Exodus 12 to Exodus 4 to Exodus 3. So we're actually seeing the sequence of events in Joshua 5 are the reverse sequence of the book of Exodus. Now, when we read Scripture, any part of Scripture, but especially as we read the Old Testament, we always want to keep in mind the big story of Scripture, the big story of Scripture, to understand any particular book of the Bible or any particular passage. And so all of the imagery, all of the types and the pictures and the promises of the Old Testament are pointing to the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. Everything that we read in the Old Testament, because Jesus himself says that in Luke 24, is meant to show him, is meant to point us to him. And so Jesus today, in a sense, is re-Edenizing the world. I've said that before. Uh, what Jesus is doing right now in this moment is he has made a people for himself. He continues to make a people for himself. And in his kingdom, he is, in a sense, re-Edenizing the world. And it will not be fully realized until new heavens and new earth when he comes again. And so here's what I want to argue about this part of Joshua it has a trajectory back into Genesis. You can see it as getting into the promised land is like returning into the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. It's, it's like that. It's not exactly the same, but you can get a picture of how that could be. Now, you might again be asking, Jeff, why are you going through so much trouble talking about this? Why are you talking about Genesis when we're in the book of Joshua? We're actually going to look uh, very closely at this next week for sure, but for today, I want you to remember Genesis 3 in particular. Again, if you know your Bible, then you know Genesis 3 is where we see the heartache and the, and the, the, the terror and the, and the terribleness of the fall in Genesis 3. But if you remember in Genesis 3, when God drives out Adam and Eve from the garden, he places a cherubim with a flaming what on the eastern edge of the garden? A flaming sword, right? And what do we find here on the eastern edge of the land and promise in Joshua 5? We find a man with a sword. And so if, if I am uh, compelled to say that we're moving back into the Garden of Eden, then we need to pay attention certainly to what is being said here with this man with a sword. And really ask the question, who is this man with a sword? Shows up pretty mysteriously all at once this, is not, this has not been a character in the book of Joshua in an explicit way. All of a sudden, Joshua shows up, about to enter Jericho, and here is a man with a sword. And the man, in verse 14, says that he is the commander of the Lord's army. So the, another question we might ask is, what army are you talking about? Is it the army of the men of Israel? Or is it the army of angelic beings or heavenly hosts? Well, the answer is yes. Yes. 
The man with a sword is a manifestation of God himself. We understand that clearly in many ways because Joshua falls to his face to worship this man. And actually the man asks Joshua to remove his sandals because of the holiness of this place because of this man. Now, I actually believe that this is uh, an appearance of the pre-existent Christ Jesus. There's not universal agreement on that. Uh, and in fact, many theologians, really, really good theologians, disagree about that. But I think the case is strong that what we are seeing in this story is the pre-existent Christ Jesus. Now, if we believe that Christ is fully God and fully man, then we believe that he was, he is, before he was born to Mary in Bethlehem. And because he is God, he has existed from eternity past and appeared in various places in the Old Testament. I believe this is one of those places where the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ shows up. Now, there's a lot that we can say as we unpack Scripture about why that is, the argument that we can make that this is the pre-existent or pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. But for our purposes this morning, let me just point out a few things and primarily look in verse 14 when, when this man says, now I have come. Now I have come. In the Gospels, Jesus says, I have come more than a dozen times. Numerous times, Jesus says, I have come. John 18, 37, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill it. Matthew 10, 34, I have not come to bring peace to earth, but I have come to bring a sword. In Joshua 5, he has come. And we should ask why. Why has Jesus come in Joshua 5? Why did the appearance of a pre-existent, pre-incarnate Jesus need to come at this moment? I mean, after all, as you've been tracking with us over the past several weeks, God has been speaking to Joshua. Uh, God himself has all along been with Joshua. Joshua has listened to the voice of God. He's obeyed what God has said and trusted God up until this point. But you see, this man, this commander of the Lord's army, is a visible assurance. This man is a visible assurance of God's presence with and promises to Joshua. Joshua and the people of God will not be able to enter the promised land without this man and a sword set against his enemies. His divine judgment is set against Satan and his kingdom, and that's exactly what the Canaanites in this land represent. So, now, with somewhat of an understanding about who the characters are now, who, who is in the story, who this man with a sword is, I want to spend the rest of our time in the message considering this interaction that he has with Joshua and consider two points along with that. Those two points are also on the, the sheet. It's, it's this. The first one is God's justice sets proper priorities. It's God's justice that sets proper priorities. The second one is God's holiness sets proper position. 
But first, let's consider together God's justice, how it sets proper priorities. Once again, uh, we're seeing this, this incredible theme in the book of Joshua uh, over and over again, that uh, the necessity of Israel's covenant obedience to success, right? That it's, that it's Israel listening to the word of God, responding in obedience. And it's over and above any type of military strategy. In fact, we haven't seen any traditional military strategy in the book of Joshua. We've, we've heard God speak. We've heard the people say that they will obey. They have been worshiping God. We saw the priority of God's people to be consecrated and prepared before they crossed the Jordan River. We saw last week the priority of worship in, in the circumcision of the men and the taking of the Passover meal together. And today, we have the priority of knowing and understanding God's justice. There's a priority for God's people in knowing that God is perfectly just. Look again at the uh, end of verse 13. This is what Joshua approaches this man with the sword and asks. He says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Now, we would expect this man, especially if we uh, know that this man is God, if it is Jesus, you would expect that he would say to Joshua, I'm for you guys. I'm here on your side. I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you came up here and asked me. I'm for you. But instead, no, what, what does the man say? Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Joshua asks, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the man says, no, but I am. Who are you for? I am. The great I am. God is for God. God is for God. One commentator I was reading this week says this about the Lord's answer to Joshua in this passage. He said, quote, God is neither straightforwardly for Israel nor straightforwardly against her enemies. Rather, as seen in the story of Rahab, what matters is alignment with and obedience to Yahweh. The right question to ask is, whether one is for Yahweh or not, and not the other way around. Joshua was not asking the right question of this man. He wasn't asking the right question, and, and neither do we so often, if we're honest. We, we so often of God, or as we consider who God is, ask the wrong question. But knowing proper priorities will lead us to ask the right questions. That's one of my hopes this morning for us, is that as we really consider who God is, that we will ask the right questions of him and about him. If you watched the Super Bowl last week, I don't know how many of you did, uh, you may have seen the, the ad pop up a couple of times for this campaign called He Gets Us. 
In fact, uh, He Gets Us has been popping up over uh, several different uh, places. I know they have billboards up in certain cities. They've been on sides of buses. They've been in other TV spots before. He Gets Us is a campaign uh, that, you, uh, that you see and actually hear in the campaigns themselves. And then if you read uh, the people behind this campaign of He Gets Us has explicitly said the reason for the campaign of He Gets Us is, quote, to tell a better story about Jesus. That He Gets Us is to tell a better story about Jesus. And so if you've seen these ads, uh, what, what happens most of the time is that the screen is black and then you get questions pop up on the screen. You get questions like, was Jesus ever lonely? Was Jesus ever stressed? Did Jesus have fun? Did Jesus face criticism? And then the answer flashes up on the screen. Yes, he gets us. Now, on one hand, you can understand why such an ad campaign campaign might exist, can you not? You can understand, after 2,000 years, how so many Christians, in the name of Jesus Christ, have done terrible, horrific things over the course of church history. So you would understand, in a way, that there would be a group that would want to bring the world into the knowledge of Jesus the man, the man who knows our oppression, the one who knows our suffering, Jesus the one who doesn't fit into worldly political systems. That's a noble thought. That's a noble idea. But you can imagine if someone were to ask the he gets us people the question, is Jesus a merciful, empathetic man? Or is Jesus the divinely just judge against sin? You have a feeling that they would answer the former, but not the latter. Friends, God doesn't work within these false dichotomies. It doesn't work in these false choices or false binaries. So no matter how strong the cultural currents are to believe only that Jesus gets me, he gets me, he knows my sufferings, and he's okay with me no matter what I do or what I think or what I believe. We, as the church, must be, we are called to proclaim the Jesus of the Bible. We're we're called to proclaim the Jesus of Scripture. And so if we say, Jesus, are, are you truth or are you love? He says, I am. Jesus, are you truth or are you grace? I am. Jesus, are you God or are you man? I am. You see, he he gets us, and he calls us to repent from our sins. He gets us, and he tells us to deny ourselves and pick up our cross to follow him. He gets us as we are, and radically transforms us from darkness to light. This is Jesus. The real question is, do you get him? The real question for us is, do you get him? The God of mercy and love and grace for sinners and the God of justice whose wrath will remain on the unrepentant and disobedient. Friends, we we have to reconcile that in this passage, Jesus is holding a drawn sword. 
the symbol of his perfect justice. And so, if we see that God's justice sets our priorities, the proper priorities, the the questions that we should be asking, the complete picture as the Bible presents of Jesus Christ, then on the other hand, we should see in this passage that God's holiness sets our proper position. God's holiness sets proper position. Immediately after this man reveals who he is, Joshua falls to his face to worship this man. And he's told to remove his sandals because this place is holy. Joshua assumes a lowly position in the presence of God. Now, what's remarkable is that we've only been just a few words past when Joshua was exalted in front of the people of Israel. If you recall in chapter 4, one chapter previous to this, Joshua is exalted in the sight of all the people of Israel. And and now here he is, humbled, laid out on the ground. In light of a holy God, Joshua remembers that he is dust. And he lies in the dust, in the proper position of worship. And Joshua asks, what does my Lord say to his servant? It's important that we see that Joshua fell before the walls of Jericho fell. That Joshua's sandals are removed before Jericho's wickedness is removed. Friends, this is the heart. This is the heart of worship. This is our heart's posture in worship. This is, this is why when we uh, so often come to pray as a body on a Sunday morning, we will say, please get into a position that you and your heart can have a reverent worship for the Lord. That might be physically kneeling or being on the ground. But what, the heart, what, what God is going after in us, as we talked about last week, is our heart. And so where is your heart when it comes to worshiping our Lord? Is your heart bowing down before the Lord, in the fear of the Lord. Do we remove our shoes in God's holy presence? Humility and repentance are beautiful things, church. And Chris mentioned it a few minutes ago, that we're seeing repentance in places like Asbury, Kentucky, at that university. That whatever you want to call that, whatever you want to say is going on there. If it indeed is revival, we're going to see the fruit of that if it is revival over a long period of time. But what we know, what we've observed, what we've heard from people who are there is repentance is happening. And humility, recognizing who they are before a holy God and confessing and repenting of their sins. And that is a beautiful thing. And Satan will always be against those two things. Satan will always be against humility and repentance. And so the question for us this morning is, do you enter into God's presence low and reverent or high and lifted up? In other words, do you keep your shoes on or take them off on God's holy ground? Now we we can't escape being worshipers. That's who we are. That's, we were created to worship. God created a people to worship. The question is simply, who or what are you bowing down to? 
in your life, who or what are you bowing down to? Is it Yahweh or is it an idol that you have fashioned in your heart? We've been so encouraged by this generation of the Israelites, have we not? I mean, so far, as we've read five chapters in, the people of God have responded the way that we would hope that we would respond to God's word, in obedience. But we only are going to have to turn the page two pages over in chapter seven before we see that all go away. Two chapters away before all that changes. And then we only have to go one book past the book of Joshua into the book of Judges to find that the people have gone after other gods and have bowed down to them. In our culture and in our, in our day, uh, likely we are not carving wood idols. I don't think anyone in this room is doing that. No one is taking their jewelry and melting it down and fashioning it into a golden idol. But you are, I am, constantly making idols in my own heart. Like we have idols of the heart. And we say to our idols instead of God, what does my Lord say to his servants? We may not say that out loud, but this is what's happening when you present yourself as a slave to your idol. Friends, the call is to see our bowing down to these idols. Whatever idol that you have fashioned for yourself in your heart, maybe it's an idol of comfort. Maybe you're worshiping at the altar of comfort. Maybe it's an, the, the idol of being a good mother. Maybe it's the idol of pornography, of money, of control, of success. What is the idol that you have built up in your heart that you are falling down before? Friends, we're, we're called to confess those idols, to confess that idolatry in our heart, to turn away from false gods and to return to Jesus and receive afresh his forgiving grace and be cleansed from all unrighteousness and to remove our shoes in the presence of a holy God. That's the call. The man with a sword, the commander of the Lord's army, the Lord himself in this story looks down and sees Joshua laid out on the ground with his shoes removed. And he recognizes, this man recognizes that there will be a day hundreds of years from this moment in history when he would be born a new Joshua, Jesus of Nazareth. That he would be born of woman under the law to redeem those under the law. As Joshua fell on his face by Jericho, Jesus would fall on his in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Joshua found himself under a sword but kept alive in covenant keeping, Jesus would find himself under a sword but treated as a covenant breaker and be killed for our iniquity. The edge of the sword will swing next week in Jericho. It will swing against all ungodliness and unrighteousness and evil. But may we never forget that we too were born by nature children of wrath. They're sons of daughters of unrighteousness. 
This we were born in. But this is love. This is love that even in our ungodliness and in our evil on the cross, Christ took the edge of God's sword in our place. God's holiness and justice demanded it. But we rejoice that the story does not end there. The story ends with an empty tomb. And our Savior is alive. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And he'll come again with a sword. This time from his mouth, as we read in Revelation 19. The very word of God will strike down all the enemy nations of God once and for all. The presence of sin, the presence of addiction, of abuse, of perversion, of idolatry will be gone forever. And the man with the sword says, I am coming soon. And he is. And we're grateful for that. Let's pray as we go to God, our Father in Jesus Christ, and thank him for the fact that he is perfectly and rightfully just, that we are grateful that you have promised to take away all unrighteousness, evil, and sin, that it will be punished, that it will be removed, that you're a holy God, And may we at the same time be humbled in our hearts and lay before you on the ground, confessing our ungodliness and our sin before you, and thanking you that you have made a way for us to be washed anew. Those of us found in Jesus Christ have been covered by his atoning blood, that the wrath of God poured out on our Savior, which we rightly deserve, will not be poured out on us. Instead, the one who tasted that type of wrath and was sent into the grave for three days has risen. And we with him. May we ask the right questions. May we have the proper priorities in worshiping you, God. May we remember that, yes, you are a God of love and mercy and grace. And we can only dare approach the throne because of that mercy, love, and grace. And yet you are a God that demands justice. You are a holy God. And so help us to to have the right posture of our hearts in worshiping you and laying before you knowing that there is much forgiveness in the grace of Jesus Christ. And we love you, and we're thankful, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.